Welcome to another edition of Anthony T's Hour and Wrestling Show. I'm Anthony T. In this edition, I will be talking to author Sam Miserandino as he has a new book out called Crypto Cats, A Guide to Meow Serious Felines. He'll be on to chat about that book, which is independently published. Besides that, I will be Talking about all the chaos in WWE, i.e. a rant that goes on incoherently because, well, this promotion has become so incoherently as they say they're going to do a brand split and they don't, apparently, because they did a tournament to crown a world heavyweight champion which featured six Raw superstars and six SmackDown superstars. As they can't figure out what the hell they're doing with their brand split. Seriously. So I decided, you know what? I'll just go on one big incoherent rant on WWE. Ranting about their tournament. Their decision to put a World Heavyweight Championship belt on Raw. And of course, Roman Reigns. The title hog. As he and Soa Sokoa are going to challenge Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn at Night of Champions for the Universal Tag Team titles. And WWE Tag Team titles. That rant will show how I feel about WWE. That whole three weeks between episodes felt like that in WWE. Everything feeling so incoherent. So I'll do an incoherent rant just to show you what WWE is at times. As they can be very incoherent. Then in What's Anthony T Watching, I gave these people five films. And one film came out, The Victor. And I will review that film in What's Anthony T Watching. But first, the news. Anytime I talk about Blu-ray news... Or something coming out on Blu-ray for the very first time. You know how this is going to start off, everyone. Please, Lionsgate! We really need a Blu-ray of Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2. Come on, Lionsgate. It's been sitting in a vault for years. They put it on VOD. Why haven't we gotten a Blu-ray of Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. It is a very underrated film. You have the other two Blair Witch films on Blu-ray. Why isn't Book of Shadows on Blu-ray, Lionsgate? Okay, enough with that. But another film that I've been wanting for a very long time is coming out on Blu-ray. It is the 1986 film Trick or Treat. That's right, not the Michael Doherty film, the one with cameos from Gene Simmons and Ozzy Osbourne. Now, the old DVD pretty much put those two front and center, even though they only had cameos in that film, which is misleading everyone. But, thankfully, it doesn't look like it's going to get a misleading package. As Red Shirt Pictures, in conjunction with Synapse Films, are going to release a limited edition 4K Blu-ray version of Trick 
or treats. Details on dates are not known. Extras are not known. But they made a huge announcement recently. Michael Flesher from Red Shirt Pictures recently made the announcement that he's going to release the film on his own label in conjunction with Synapse Films. It's about damn time this film hits Blu-ray. This is a film that's been sitting out there for years. It's been out in most countries, but not here in the United States until now. Thankfully, it's finally coming. And we don't know why it took so long. Because apparently it wasn't music rights. We just don't know why it took so long. Probably because this film kept bouncing from studio to studio. You know how one studio folds, another studio takes over the rights to a film, and so on. So maybe that's probably the reason why Trick or Treat has not hit Blu-ray until now. But this year, they are hoping it comes out on Blu-ray. I really would like to see this film on Blu-ray. Seriously. This is a very underrated 80s slasher film that I don't think gets talked a lot when you think of 80s slasher films. It falls into, I think, the same category as The Mutilator of slasher films from the 80s that are so underrated. But thankfully, that is getting a Blu-ray release this year from Red Shirt. Pictures and Synapses films. I can't wait to own that film. Seriously. It's been a long time coming. But it's finally going to happen. Most likely this year. About time. Now if we can get Lionsgate to release Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2. Everything would be right in the world. And I'm still going to hop on Lionsgate. To release this film until they release Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2 on Blu-ray. You have Vestron Video. Why don't you use that to release Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2? You've released The Dentist out of all things. You can release Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2, Lionsgate. Enough with Blu-ray news. Because I'll just continue pleading for a Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2. And I got another thing that I have to get to. Sticking with Blair Witch, it is reported that Lionsgate is getting ready to make another Blair Witch Project film. That's right, we are getting another Blair Witch Project film. They can't release Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2 on Blu-ray, but they have time to make a Blair Witch film. This will be like the second Blair Witch film in which we have seen without a Book of Shadows Blu-ray. According to BloodyDisgusting.com in Production Weekly, there is a rumor going around that Oliver Park has been hired to direct the untitled Blair Witch sequel. It's being targeted for a summer-slash-fall shoot. Now, Oliver Pock's a British writer-director who directed the film The Offering last year and has directed such films as Strange Events, Still, and A Night of Horror, Nightmare Radio. The production company attached to this film is Haxton Films, the team behind the original Blair Witch Project, but that has not been confirmed at all. Please, I hope that's the case. That would be nice. I like to have the original creators at least 
be involved, it would be nice. Since they did the original film, they should at least be allowed to be producers. Hopefully they'll have more creative input in this film. As they haven't had much creative input in the other two Blair Witch sequels. But still, I really think they should have at least some creative input. After all, they're the ones who spawned this franchise. And if you create a hit film like that, you should have at least a little say in what goes on with it. It's like Lionsgate pretty much has made these films with them on board in, in a limited capacity. They should have more of a say. I really think they need to have more of a say. It might get this franchise back on track. Seriously. That would be a good move for Lionsgate if they would bring back the original creators Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Because those two guys right there created a phenomenon when the first Blair Witch film came out in theaters. Because if it wasn't for their genius, that film would have not had succeeded at the box office. It would have been just your average horror film. Or direct to the art house cinema film. But their genius in creating a story and setting everything up months in advance helped made this film a huge success and drummed up interest. I really think they need to be back in this franchise. That's the only way I think this franchise gets back on track. Sure, I love Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2. I still haven't seen Adam Wingard's Blair Witch film. But Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez should have more control in this franchise. Instead of just relegated to just sit there and collect a paycheck. Because literally, they are the people who know the franchise the best. They should be involved in some capacity. Because if they're not involved in some capacity, then these films don't work. Because they know the franchise the best. Because they did the original film. So I'm hoping this rumor is true that the production company of Haxton Films are attached to this. Because that would be a good sign for this film upcoming. If they're not attached to this, it's probably going to end up being a failure at the box office like Adam Wingard's Blair Witch or Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2. The original creators need to be involved back in the franchise. It's the only way to get the Blair Witch Project franchise back on track, in my opinion. Moving on to wrestling news. AEW. That's right, we're talking all elite wrestling. I know there's some of you that don't want the, me to talk about all elite wrestling, but we're talking about all elite wrestling here. Well, they announced a show in London, England at Wembley Stadium, and according to various reports, ticket sales so far for that show is at 60 that's right, 60,000. And tickets as of this recording have been on sale for what, a week? 
and they've already sold 60,000 tickets, probably even more than 60,000. But that's the last number I found out. That is such a major accomplishment for AEW, as everybody who doesn't like AEW wants this promotion to go away. It's not going away, people. I hate to break the bad news to you AEW haters, but this promotion is here to stay for the long run. They've done 60000 at Wembley Stadium so far for this upcoming September show All In. They've also have a new TV deal coming, which may be announced at the upfronts on Wednesday. By the time this podcast is dropped, they may have announced a new massive TV deal. And on top of that, we're getting a, another two-hour AEW show, AEW Collision, on Saturday nights on TNT. So, this promotion ain't going anywhere, folks. I'm sick of the people whining, oh, AEW should die. AEW's a vanity project. AEW's this. AEW's that. I am sick of it. Seriously. And I know who most of them are. WWE fans, most likely. Not saying all of them, but some of them think that WWE is wrestling and that's it. I hate to break it to these people. There's much more wrestling besides WWE out there. You have the National Wrestling Alliance. You have Major League Wrestling, Impact Wrestling, Game Changer Wrestling. There's a ton of wrestling promotions out there, people. Why do you people think that WWE is the be-all and end-all? I don't get it. Every time another promotion does a great job, you guys hate on it. I don't get it. The more companies that are out there, the more opportunities for wrestlers to live their dream and get paid a good sum of money. It's just some people in this wrestling community... Just really makes me want to put my head down. Literally. I am sick of this tribalism in this wrestling business. You people always crap on a promotion that succeeds, WWE fan. I'm not saying all WWE fans, but the hardcore WWE fans want everything else to fail. It's good to have competition. It keeps WWE from going into complacency. And we all know what happens then. Vince McMahon books shows for Vince McMahon. And that's not a good thing. So, people should be congratulating AEW for 60000 in its first week. Not hating on this promotion, seriously. Enough with this talk that they're a t-shirt company. They are a wrestling company. Same as WWE, folks. 
Enough with this tribalism. AEW is here to stay. Get with it, people. And that's the news. Discussions, your place for the discussion of horror film, fiction, and all that's fantastic. A weekly podcast here. The discussion is about the most recent horror and genre films. Intelligent talk on a genre that deserves intelligence. A conversation between co-hosts discussing not only the film, but also the connotation that the directors and screenwriters are trying to articulate. When you want more than a review, listen to Dark Discussions. Speaking of perception, there's just one more scene I want to talk about, which is after Caleb discovers that Kyoto's a robot, Kyoto kind of peels off her skin, showing him what's underneath. Now, wait a minute. I know where you're going with this, but tell me you weren't already thinking this 15 minutes earlier in the film. Exactly what he's thinking at that moment. Which is he's a robot, too. Oh, I considered the possibility. Right, and that's what I like, is the fact that the writers were smart enough to know that this is what the audience would be thinking. We've all seen Blade Runner. <laughs> right, exactly. www.darkdiscussions.com Wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. Now, this past week in WWE was WTF. Seriously. Let's start off with the tournament for the World Heavyweight title as it included six superstars from Raw and six superstars from SmackDown. Are you kidding me? I thought we were in a brand split, people. That means SmackDown stars should not be competing for the World Heavyweight title. But apparently we are having SmackDown stars compete for the World Heavyweight title. I'm not going to get into who won which matches and everything. I'll tell you it's going to be AJ Styles versus Seth Rollins for the World Heavyweight Championship at Night of Champions. Sure, it's going to be a very good match. But still, why do we need a Raw Superstar versus a SmackDown Superstar? And this wasn't the only other thing I don't get with WWE. Let's talk about how WWE introduces another World Heavyweight Championship. Why? Why do they do this? Seriously. Now you have three heavyweight championships. You have the WWE Universal title. You have the WWE Championship. And now you have the World Heavyweight Championship. Which might as well be a consolation prize for wrestlers who are not named Roman Reigns. Why do they do this? This all happened on the April 24th edition of Monday Night Raw where Triple H introduced the new belt. And during the draft on SmackDown four days later, it was official that that belt would be the official Raw Heavyweight title because Roman Reigns got drafted to SmackDown. 
as they're doing the WWE draft again. Why, I don't know. Seriously. Why do we need a third belt in WWE? A third heavyweight championship belt. This is bleeping ridiculous. I really don't get this company. Seriously. Why do you need a third heavyweight championship? Couldn't you just take one of the heavyweight championships off Roman Reigns? I'm sick of this him being labeled undisputed champion. It's time to split those two belts that Roman Reigns has. But no, WWE is just wanting to make Roman Reigns the biggest title hog of all time since Hulk Hogan. I really don't get why WWE really needs to have a third heavyweight championship belt. Because that heavyweight championship belt feels like a consolation prize, quite frankly. For those who are drafted to Raw as they are second fiddle. As that championship, in my mind, means nothing. It's just a consolation prize because the real championships are the WWE Championship and the WWE Universal Championship. They're only doing this to please USA Network. I don't understand why couldn't they just split the two belts Roman Reigns had. This is the problem that you had when you had Roman Reigns beat Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania this year. You kept the titles on him, meaning he'll still be the part-time champion. He'll show up whenever he wants to show up, which I don't get, because championships should be defended every 30 days. And I admit AEW has that same problem too. But still, I don't get why they're just awarding Roman Reigns for being a part-timer. I don't get it, seriously. It's one thing if he's on TV every week, but he's not. And that title goes away for a month or two. What are they going to do on SmackDown? Seriously. Gunther is going to Raw, and he has a long intercontinental title reign. That's not going to be interesting now for SmackDown, because they probably could have used Imperium on SmackDown, considering the fact that Gunther has this long title reign. But they moved him to Aurora along with the rest of Imperium. Now, there's nothing on SmackDown for titles. I'm sure they'll get the U.S. belt. But still, you're on Fox. And it's about time for Roman Reigns to drop the titles. Seriously. It's been way too long as champion. And it's just to the point where every match has to have 10 million guys running interference for and against him. It's ridiculous. It feels like the NWO in the 1990s where, you, where guys are running in and out, interfering, trying to get Hulk Hogan to win matches. Oh, WCW interfering to get their wrestlers to win matches. I don't get it. Seriously. They really need to stop winding down this bloodline story. 
It's going on way too long, and it's just, I'm sick of it. Seriously. It's bad enough now they got Roman Reigns and Solo Sokoa challenging for the undisputed tag team titles at Night of Champions. First of all, what the hell is Roman Reigns doing going for the tag titles? What, his undisputed championship means nothing at Night of Champions? That's such ridiculous. Seriously. He should be defending the Universal Championship, not going for the tag team titles. And what happens if he wins the undisputed tag team titles? Then that will be held hostage, too. It's ridiculous that Roman Reigns could possibly have four sets of belts, and he's a pot-timer. This Bloodline storyline is going off the rails. It is making Roman Reigns look more and more like a title hog. If he and Sokoa win the tag titles at Night of Champions. Seriously. And that's not good. That means your product's not good if you're repeating yourself constantly. And having one person be the dominant person in the whole promotion. For a pot timer. Seriously. If they give Roman Reigns the tag team titles. The undisputed tag team titles. I don't know what I'll do. This company is so ridiculous. It seems like they're... All in on Roman Reigns and forget about everybody else. Let's hold the tag team division hostage. We're already holding up the undisputed championship and the WWE championship hostage by putting it with a pot timer to the point where we had to do a third world heavyweight championship. What's next after this? We're going to have to have a new set of tag team titles, too? Please, I don't want any more titles in WWE. Seriously, that says World Heavyweight or World Tag Team Titles. Because seriously, if Reigns and Soa Sokoa win, you might as well stop printing up those World Heavyweight Tag Team Titles. Because Roman Reigns... Being a part-timer has done harm to WWE to the point where it's ridiculous. It's bad enough now where I have a heavyweight championship as a consolation prize. I don't need a world tag team championship as a consolation prize. Please, I'm sick of this world heavyweight title. Roman Reigns just holds this company hostage. Enough. Every day there's a family struggling with hospital bills to care for their sick child who is fighting an illness. There's a woman who is fighting breast cancer and is having trouble making ends meet while paying for their treatment. And there are burn victims that are going through treatments to heal their deep wounds. There is a charity in the horror community that helps these people. Scares That Care is an organization that helps families deal with the bills for their child. They help women get the treatment they need to fight breast cancer. And they help people who are dealing with 
severe burns get the help they need to heal. Skirsak Care is a 100% volunteer organization and 501c3 nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping these people in fighting real monsters. To find out more information or to donate to Skirsak Care, you can go to www.skirsakcare.org. Every donation helps Skirsak Care fight real monsters. Hi, I'm Anthony T. And I'm director Andrew Duran. And we are the Two from Hell. And we're putting Rated R back into podcasting. Every month we will be dropping an episode on the Doc Discussions Network. We'll be chatting about some of our favorite films, news, reviews, and maybe interviews. You can find Two from Hell on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast providers. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at Two From Hell Podcast. Trust me, you're seriously not going to want to miss the show. Welcome back. I'm here with author Sam Miserandino. He's an author that's done books such as Prince of Pieces, the Addictive Animal Series, a.k.a. Children's Books for Adults, In his latest book, Crypto Cats, in which he's here to come on the podcast and talk about. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. What made you want to become an author? You know, it's one of those things where I've really been a writer, I could probably say since I was in sixth grade. I just loved writing. I loved, you know, expressing myself through writing. And, you know, for the longest time, I never really thought about writing books. Um, you know, I, I initially uh, primarily focused on writing screenplays, actually, Um and what got me, led me into the path of writing books was, uh, you had mentioned my book, Prince of Pieces, and I had initially written that as a screenplay. And I was trying to get funding for that, you know, for it as a film, but the funding fell through. So I thought, well, you know, the structure of a screenplay is very similar to a graphic novel. So I thought this could easily be converted into a graphic novel, and it worked really nicely. So that then got me into the the path of writing as an author as opposed to like a screenwriter. Who are some of your influences? You know, my I I, I love um, David Sedaris. I think his humor is just absolutely brilliant, which is probably stating the obvious. But he's a, a real inspiration for me because I think he does an especially brilliant job of sort of taking the everyday and finding the humor in it. And I think that's what people tend to be, you know, and, and that's just such a rich source of humor. And it's, I think, something that people really respond to. So he's a great inspiration. And then, you know, in terms of, you know, it kind of depends what I'm writing, but I really like the um, sort of comedy that you find in like 80s horror, like the Evil Dead, you know, Idle Hands. I just... You know, that that kind of humor for me was always a real inspiration. I found out in your bio at the end of your new book 
that you are an attorney by day, an author by night, and I know you sell books on the weekend as you go to various cons. How do you balance everything? It's a challenge because it is really like having two full-time jobs. You know, law is obviously very demanding and writing is very demanding. Uh, what I normally do if I'm working on a book is, you know, I'll get up a couple hours before I need to head into the office because I like to write in the morning um, mostly. So I'll usually get up and and go and do some writing before I have to head into the office. And that's, you know, kind of the balance. And, you know, but again, with books, writing them is only part of the process. Um you know, once you've written it, you have to really promote it, which, you know, conventions serve that purpose. But they also, you know, it's a nice chance to meet people who enjoy the books. Um, so, you know, both are just a lot of work, and I just kind of am burning the candle at both ends. So, Before we start talking about your popular series of books in your latest book, which is horror-related, what drew you to the horror genre? Well... I've I've just always loved horror ever since I was a kid. I mean that's really that's been my favorite genre of film forever. So it was just natural for me to, you know, the the sort of switch for me is doing something like the Addicted Animal series, Prince of Pieces, um and even more so I guess in some or even in some ways Crypto Cats was more of a natural extension of that love of horror. But more than any, you know, even more than horror, though, I just love satire and parody and humor. So, if that makes sense. Now, your first book was Prince of Pieces, which is hard to find. But I remember yeah. getting it years ago, I think at one of the conventions. Might have been a Scaracon. Right. Tell everyone about that book. Okay, well, Prince of Pieces is a... Uh, sort of a satirical horror story. Um, and it's about Jesus coming back, not quite as expected. Uh, the tagline is for 2000 years, you've been eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now it's his turn. Um, and basically in it, the son of God comes back and he's mad as hell. And he's taking out sinners using, uh, and, and he's primarily angry because people have corrupted his message. Um, so his main targets are people who, uh, like his, uh, you know, his, his, the main person he's opposed to is a televangelist who obviously is the biggest example of someone exploiting, you know, religion. Um, so he uses, with biblical flair, he takes people out. Um, and that's kind of the the gist of it. It's uh you know, it's it's really it's it's an interesting book and it's gotten a really interesting response as you can imagine. Why did you decide to take a risk with dealing with such a subject as religion with your first graphic novel? Well, I I'm a firm believer in writing what you feel. Do you know what I mean like not trying to cater to an audience? Um, not trying to play it safe. Um, uh, I always, and again, I always love satire and I, I just love this line by Salman Rushdie where in an interview once he was asked, can satire go too far? And his response was, if it doesn't go too far, 
um, it's not good satire. But for me, you know, Prince of Pieces was something that was really near to my heart because I, I always really disliked seeing how televangelists exploited people and took advantage of vulnerable people. Um, so for me, the book was a really nice opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, using satire address, you know, the hypocrisy that I saw in that. Were there any backlash to this book when you were at conventions trying to sell this book? There were a couple, um, not as much as you might think. Um, I, I did a convention in Atlanta and that was probably where I got the most unique response at a convention. Um, I had one person say I was a brave man for selling this book in the South. I had two people come up and weep for my soul. They were literally crying. And a third person asked if he could take my hand and pray for me. So uh, that was the only time I got sort of a unique response. Um, and then online, somebody posted something that was pretty um, hostile. But... You know, again, these are people who haven't read it. Uh, I've, I've had a lot of people who are um, very religious, which I'm not, but I had people who are very religious come up to me after buying it or after reading it. They'd contact me online and they'd say that how much they appreciated it. Because, you know, it, it, the, the book is not an attack on Christianity. It's an attack on people who exploit Christianity. Was this the book that made you want to stay away from the horror genre until your new book, or was this by choice? You know, it was more because uh, the Addicted Animals series, like I had thought about doing a sequel to Prince of Pieces, and I actually had a horror graphic novel that I was planning to do next, after Prince of Pieces, but... It was actually more because the Addicted Animals books just took off in such a big way that, you know, I just redirected my focus to that. So it wasn't sort of turning away from the genre. It was just something else demanded my attention that I also really liked. Speaking of the Addictive Animals, from there you moved on to creating a subgenre for graphic novels. Children's books for adults. Or that's what you explained to me the first time I met you. How did you come up with the idea and using the concept of children's books to tell an adult story with the Addictive Animals series? You know, it was because, you know, there's the original series, if you give a bunny a beer, if you give a moose, a muffin. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with that series, but, um, you know, there's a whole series of if you give books and I read those books to my, especially there's a book called if you give a pig a pancake. And I read those books to my children a million times. And I just thought to myself as I was reading it, probably for the millionth time, this could really use a twist. I think I could make something funny out of this concept and I was joking with my wife. I said, wouldn't it be funny to do a book called If You Give a Bunny a Beer? And she said, that would be hilarious. You should write it. So I did. And it really took off. Um, so that just led to building on and creating a series out of it. 
Tell me about the characters in the series so far. Well, we've got Bunny, if you give a bunny a beer. And Bunny's kind of the lovable but obnoxious drunk who, you know, certainly it seems like a lot of people can relate to. And then if you give a bear a bong is the second book in the series. And, you know, that's about this kind of laid back bear who inexplicably walks into this kid's house and the kid shares a bong with it and the bear loves it. If you give a kitty a cocktail, you know, the kitty character is another one. You know, it's, it's interesting with kitty and bear because when I first came out with bunny, it was through a very small publisher and is a joke on the back of the book. I thought it'd be funny to make it look like there was an addicted animal series. So the artist and I came up with titles for books that didn't exist, but we just put them on the back. And when my agent was pitching the bunny book, the publisher saw who eventually the bigger publisher eventually picked it up, saw bear on the back and said, well, we want the bunny book, but he's got to write that bear book too. So that was interesting. Um, you also have a Breaking Bad parody book, too, as well, in right, the series. Right. The, right. The fourth book in the series was If You Give a Dog a Doobie. Um, and that, you know, that certainly is a, you know, the dog character is a little more in the know than the bear character was. But, yeah, the fifth book is a Breaking Bad parody. It's called If You Give a Lab a Lab, Barking Bad. And that one I love because it's certainly our most probably complex book it's you know both in terms of crafting the storyline and the artwork was you know really took a lot out of the artist who did an amazing job and i love breaking bad so it was fun to try to like bring that all together and and it was fun to kind of expand the world of the addicted animals like where they're no longer just parodying the original if you give books but now using them to parody breaking bad you have a universe going on with these books. What gave you the idea to connect each of these characters in each of the stories in your books? Just because I really love the idea of there being a, a, a connected universe. So, you know, I like having it be this like weird little community where you have all these addicted animals. I just thought that was a really funny concept. So it started with, you know, just the initial idea was having the bunny character in bear where, you know, bunny's like, I thought it'd be so funny to have like bunny rifling through the garbage, looking for more beer during the title page of, if you give a bear a bong and have the girl from bunny looking out a window, horrified, you know, that the rabbit is still around. And then after that, as I wrote the book, you know, I thought it'd be fun to have bunny and bear be friends. And and, and once I did that in the second book, I thought, well, I've got to have, each animal in the subsequent books. And, and and then what I also did, which a couple things in terms of little Easter eggs, one is that Prince of Pieces appears in every book. So, you know, in every book, a copy of Prince of Pieces is put somewhere in the book. And then also there's a book that the publisher won't greenlight because they think it would be too controversial. And so we put that character in every book kind of, telling his story ever so slowly, but still telling it. Now, this series has art that looks like a children's book. What made you want to find an artist 
to make sure the drawings had a child book type of feel to it. Well, I knew I wanted it to be a children's book. Um, you know, so I wanted it to really have the whole feel of a children's book. So, you know, the writing is very intentionally in the cadence of a children's book. So, you know, I certainly wanted the art to match it. But, you know, the the way I met the artist was uh, he had done some lettering for Prince of Pieces. Uh, and when I wanted to do this book, and I'd also seen some of the artwork he did, and I really liked it. I asked him if he'd be interested in working on the addicted, you know, on if you give a bunny a beer, and he loved the idea, and we started working together. Moving on to your new book, Crypto Cats, a guide to meow serious felines, which has horror elements in it. Tell everyone about the book. So Crypto Cats is based on the artwork of Isaac Bidwell, who does these just this amazing artwork that's these sort of a hybrid, these cats that are part cryptid and part cat. So it'll be like Cat Squatch, which is part cat and part Sasquatch. And, and you know, Meow Dusa, which is part cat and part Medusa. So what Isaac and I talked about was doing a field guide type book to his uh, crypto cats. Uh, so, you know, we took the the crypto cats that he had already created, and then I just came up with, you know, like, what would be a natural history for this animal? Like, if this existed, what would its natural history be? What would be an interesting story behind it? And I used that to create, you know, the entry for each uh, crypto cat. Now, the ad is very different from the Addictive Animals series. As the art in this book is more grayscale, what was it about Isaac Bidwell and his grayscale art that you wanted to do this book? Um, you know, I just loved the creations. I thought they were so interesting, and I thought, you know, there's so much you could do with it. You know, like, even, even before Isaac and I started working together at conventions, I probably bought about four or five of, her, of his prints that I gave to my daughter and her hanging in her bedroom. Um, so I just love, you know, I love the art style. I like the uniqueness of it. And I thought it'd be a really interesting, you know, creative process to kind of write a book around it. Now, this is more adult-oriented and more serious in tone. Why did you go for a more serious tone in this book? Well... To some extent, um, you know, I, I tailored my writing, you know, because Isaac created the characters. So, like, you know, I might write something, and at the end of the day, if he didn't feel it worked for the artwork that he created, uh, he would tell me. So, you know, he would say, gee, you know, I don't really see that character as being that, or I don't think that works for that character. So then I would modify it to something that we both thought worked. So, you know, there were things I wrote initially that were probably more extreme in terms of just kind of over-the-top humor. But, you know, sort of finding that middle ground between my sense of humor and my vision and then our Isaac's vision for his creations, it 
sort of met in this sort of middle ground. Now you have some of these legendary myths like Medusa, Loch Ness Monster, Kahuthu, to name a few. Did you do like any research on any of those oh, beforehand? I, I before yeah, writing these little stories about each of the cats? I, I did a ton of research. So for each one of them, you know, I would research each, like, creature in depth. And then I also did a ton of research about cats. And then using that, I would try to find a way to fuse, you know, the interesting things about cats that could then be applied, you know, to that particular creature. And that process was a lot of fun. Were there any cats that were, like, tough to write for? Yeah, I think the one I probably struggled with the most was the catasis. Um, it's, like, part pegasus and part cat, obviously. That was the one I think I struggled with the most in terms of, you know, trying to find a pathway for it. What made you want to spend one page on each of them instead of doing, like two or three pages on each of them, like a um, short story. We wanted it to have the feel of a field guide. Um, and, you know, field guides usually just have that kind of one-page description. Um, and, you know, I think the feeling was, too, that it worked nicely in terms of overall formatting, you know, that people could just kind of have the picture and then read through the description of that particular crypto cat. You know, which, again, that also presented an interesting creative challenge for me because, you know, I'm used to just kind of more or less writing what I want to write. Um, but, you know, I was constrained by keeping within a word count that would keep it within a page. Um, so, you know, that was interesting. and It was fun to kind of approach something that way. What was it like coming up with some of the taglines to some of these cats? As there are some good ones in this book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was just fun. You know what I mean? That was just like really fun just looking at them and thinking, you know, kind of because part of the feel that Isaac was looking for was sort of a sideshow feel. Um, you know, he wanted it to have the feel of like both a field guide, but also like, you know, what would it be like if these things were at a sideshow? So in coming up with the, uh, the sort of head or the captions for each, I was thinking, you know, what if, what would it be like if each of these was something you're going to walk in and see at a fair? You know how they always have those little banners with like just a few word descriptions? You know, I was trying to think, think of things that had that tone and feel to them. What was it like having to work with Isaac Bidwell, considering that you were working with his art compared to working with your own ideas? with the Addictive Animal series? You know, it wasn't all that... I mean, it was different to the extent that, you know, I certainly... You know, these these are Isaac's creations. You know what I mean? So I'm, like, trying to create text around it, but at the end of the day, he's got to like the text or feel that it fits what he's created. So in that way, it created a different dynamic, but on the other hand... You know, it was a real back and forth and a real in a process where there was, you know, discussion in terms of how to craft it, what things might need to be changed. And, you know, I do that with uh, Mike Odom, who illustrates the Addicted Animals series, where, 
you know, Mike's a really funny, really talented guy and, and has just amazing ideas, not just for images, but, you know, for text. So, you know, there's a lot of interplay with me and Mike. So it's not like I just say, okay, Mike, here's my text and that's it. Nothing's going to be changed. It's written in stone. You know, Mike will say, well, this, this may not work. Do you think this might be funnier? And a lot of times he's right. I, I'm not one of those. I don't believe that, like, I, I like the interplay in the creative process when you're working with someone. And I think that ultimately makes what you're creating better. Was there a cat where you really liked the text and Isaac Bidwell said no? Yes. <laughs> My um, initial vision for the Loch Ness Kitty, I really liked. Um, like in the book now, it's set in, you know, like a lake in Ohio, um, you know, like a small lake, which I think is kind of funny and absurd. And initially I thought it'd be funny to have it set in like some guy's above ground pool, like a guy who drank too much. And he had this like disgusting in-ground pool that was so murky that it was theoretically possible that this crypto cat lived in it and isaac did not like that so so i changed it but that's the one that probably stands out the most for me you know but again i will say that probably for the you know vast majority of ones where he said i think this could be tweaked i think this could be a different approach i feel that at the end of the day it ended up better for the whole book so which was your favorite story out of all of them oh boy i would have to say Probably, I really like the um, circus cat a lot, um, and I like twinsies a lot. So those might be my two favorites. Is this a one-off book, or we'll be seeing more of these in the future? You know, I'm not sure. It's hard to say, because, I mean, Isaac does have other cryptids. He has a lot of really interesting stuff. So I think we'll probably just see how this does, and if it's something we feel like we could, you know, do another book based on it. Will this be available on retail? Uh, that's my hope. I mean, right now we've uh, independently, it's, it's self-published. Um, we just did a limited run. But my agent who represents me on the Addicted Animals books is currently pitching it to publishers. So if it gets picked up, it will be. Can people purchase this book as we speak? They could. Um, they'd have to find me on probably Facebook would be the best way. And then they could just message me and I'll be happy to send them a copy. What are some of your upcoming books for people to keep an eye out for? The next book is that's coming out in August is If You Give an Elephant Edibles. Uh, and that, of course, will be another Addicted Animals book. Um, and then, although I can't give too many details, in 2024, we're working on uh, an Addicted Animals Christmas-themed book. So I'm really looking forward to that. Any chance you'll have another horror-related book out? It's possible. Um, you know, it, it would probably be, you know, because right now I, the Addicted Animals series really consumes a lot of my time. But I do have a... A horror story that, again, it would be like Prince of Pieces, where it'd be satirical. That I'd really like to do. So that it's definitely possible that I may have another one in me. Any upcoming conventions where you'll be at? 
The next one is Raleigh um, at the end of July, I think it is. Where can they find you on social media? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook under my name. And then also I have a Facebook page under the Addicted Animal Series. So people can find information about you know upcoming events and so forth and can reach out to me there. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, but I don't use that as much. Sam, I want to thank you for coming on to my podcast. Oh, thank you for having me on it. Yeah, I've been wanting to get you on this podcast for a while, but we I needed something horror-related to get you on. Right, And this right. was the perfect one to get you on for, which was a good book, Crypto Cats. Oh, thank you. So thank, thank you. you again for coming on to this podcast, and have a good day. Thanks, you too. For all your social media needs on Auntie T's Power and Russian Show, you can go to at Wrestling on Twitter at Media. You can listen and subscribe to Anthony's Power and Wrestling Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other major podcast providers. You can also listen to the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash at Media and DocDiscussions.com. What's Anthony T watching? Well, I put it up to you, the listener, to choose what I review. Last episode, I gave you five films. And here are the results of the poll. Coming in last place with zero votes, Biozombie. Well, I'm not surprised about that, even though I was wishing that it would get some votes. Which is personally a surprise to me was The Last House on the Left, the original, not the remake. Also got no votes. Now, these next three are the only three films that got votes. This is like a tie for second. As both The Dentist and Death Warmed Up got a vote. As everybody else voted for John Carpenter's Vampires. So guess what? I will be reviewing John Carpenter's Vampires. The film has a very big cast including James Woods, Daniel Baldwin, Cheryl Lee, and Thomas Ian Griffin. So there are some names to this film. It was released back in 1998 and directed by one of the masters of horror, John Carpenter. Well, I've not seen vampires, but I'm a huge fan of the vampires genre. And I have to say about John Carpenter's vampires, it was a disappointment. Seriously, this film was very disappointing because I love vampire films. And I have to admit, the first third of the film and the last third of the film were intense and action-packed. I liked it. as I felt like that all the action scenes in this film were directed very well here. As John Carpenter does a very good job in the way he handles all the action scenes in this film. It has this intense feel. It keeps you interested. It makes in what you're watching. Because... 
For a film like this, you need the action to be good. Especially in a vampire film, I love good action. And if you're not going to have this romantic story, I'd rather have a bloody action film. And this was bloody, and the action was good. The problem I had was that middle part of the film. Literally. As that middle part of the film felt like it went on forever. In fact, I feel like it's still going on as we speak. I just don't know what the writers thought here. As John Stakely and Don Jacoby don't do a very good job with that middle part of that film. Seriously. It just drags on. These characters aren't interesting. They feel like they're one note. You're waiting for some action to happen. Instead, you have scenes where it just feels like they are going nowhere. I know you're trying to tell the backstory and everything, but shouldn't you tell some of the backstory in the beginning of the film? And the script also has problems with killing off half of its cast in the first act. You can't do that. Seriously. This felt like it was a cheesy B-movie. Where you just eliminate a ton of characters in the first act. And you just have like five or six main characters. And that's it through the rest of this film. As this film really felt like a B-movie. I really did not like the fact that they don't build any characters in. In this film. Because they get rid of a lot of them. Early on. It's fine to get rid of characters. In a film. Don't get me wrong. But I'm one of those people that likes it spaced out. I don't like it. Where you're just eliminating a bunch of people. Either in the first act. Or the third act of the film. It just does not work for me. Seriously. Then you run into the problem. In the middle part of the film. Because you don't have many characters left. And this film disposes of characters quickly in this film. And that's not a good sign. I know they're small characters. But it would have been nice to get to know the team a little more. Instead of them just being throwaway characters. With the exception of your main characters in this film. Because that's... One of the problems with the screenplay. It gets rid of a lot of characters way too early. I really thought they could have kept that team dynamic throughout. Maybe until somewhere in the second act or so. Maybe build it up a little more. But it felt like they just wanted to get rid of everybody in the first act. And focus on James Woods, Cheryl Lee, Thomas Ian Griffin... The Priest and Daniel Baldwin. And the Cardinal. That's it. Everyone else in the beginning of that film was expendable. And that really does not work when you're trying to make a film where you're trying to keep a person's interest and tell a story. That's what made the second act go on for so long. And it felt so dull. And the performances... Really showed it, especially in that second act. As you gave them hardly anything to do. Because all you have is exposition in the second act. 
They should have started with a little exposition in the first act, have a little more sprinkled in the second act, kill a few team members. In fact, that's when they should have gone, not like 15, 20 minutes into the movie. But anyway, it's just the screenplay was like, it's what killed this film for me. The acting was okay. James Woods was okay. Even though he felt like Nicolas Cage at times. Thomas Ian Griffin's a good villain in the film. Charlie's good. Daniel Baldwin's good. But it's just that second act in this film that kills this film for me. Because literally, if you wanted to do all this exposition, you should have had the exposition sprinkled in the first act and second act and not all in one act. If you're going to do that, you do that at the beginning of the film. Not in the middle of the film because literally it can take a person out of a film. And it is very hard to get that person back in. If it wasn't for that action-packed finale... This film probably would have been a two-star or one-star film, quite frankly. For a rating of this film, I'm going to give it probably two and a half stars. It has good action. It's just that second act kills this film for me. Because it felt like it took forever to get to that final act. I hate it because John Carpenter did a good job directing this film. Seriously. I hate to give two and a half stars, but... That second act felt like it dragged way too long and pretty much almost killed the movie for me. I already have stuff planned for this podcast, starting with episode 98, which will drop hopefully next week because I have a Halfway to Black Friday VS preview. So I will have an episode next week for all of you. So I'll recommend five films that you should pick up at the VS Halfway to Black Friday sale. Which takes place Memorial Day weekend. I'll also talk about how Cocaine Bear has spawned many mockbusters. I have thoughts on that. That will be up next episode as well. Episode 99 will be my thoughts on Double or Nothing 2023. And episode 100 is a mystery. With that, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube at YouTube.com. At Film IK Media. With that one, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a good day. Support indie wrestling and support indie horror.
This has been a film arcade media production.